Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Jason Crawford, who writes about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress at his blog, The Roots of Progress. He is also the creator of Progress Studies for Young Scholars, an online learning program for high schoolers, and a part-time advisor and technical consultant to Our World in Data, an Oxford-based nonprofit for research and data on global development. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Great to be here. You've become well known as the progress guy, and you've said that your goal is to define a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century, which tells the story of how we created an industrial civilization. So I had a couple of softball questions that I wanted to get out of the way right here in the beginning, if that's okay with you. Please. So how do you define progress? Progress is anything that helps us live better lives. Um, anything that helps us be healthier, happier, um, have more options and choices in our life, expands our range of possibilities and knowledge, um, you know, and generally kind of helps us uh, thrive and flourish. You can think of progress broadly across multiple domains. Now, many times when we talk about progress, we're thinking a little bit narrowly about uh, material, technological, economic progress. Right. And that's most of what I write about. And that's a lot of what progress studies um, has talked about. Uh, you know, things like um, in inventing better technologies and machines, automating manufacturing and agriculture, discovering antibiotics, new sources of energy, you know, all of these things increase GDP, raise standards of living, and generally kind of improve material living conditions. Um, but you could also think about progress in knowledge. Our understanding of the world has increased an enormous amount in the last couple of hundred years with the scientific revolution. And you can also think about progress in morality, society, and government. Um, and in this area, I think it's harder to see progress um, and, and easier to despair, perhaps. Uh, and certainly progress has not been as consistent and, uh, you know, as amazingly exponential as in maybe some of the other areas. But I think it's actually real and it's there uh, if you look for it. It's something we should uh, learn to see and to appreciate. So why is it necessary to have a discipline that is focused on progress as a philosophical concept? Well, first off, anything so important to human life uh, and flourishing, you it deserves dedicated study, right? Um, if it, when you think about what has happened to the human race over the last two or three hundred years, um, enormous numbers of people have been lifted out of poverty. Poverty has been virtually redefined. Uh, in entire new standards of living have come into existence. Um, millions or billions of lives have been saved by technology. We are made, uh, you know, much more wealthy and comfortable and safe. Um, and, and as I said, we've expanded our uh, opportunities for to, to to live the kind of life we want to live. Um, whether that's, uh, you know, we get to live where we want to live. We get to meet different kinds of people, marry whom we choose. Um, decide whether to have children or not, and when and how many, you know, all kinds of, of ways in which our life has gotten better. When you look at this, you know, the, the advance of technology, science, and industry of the last couple hundred years is like the greatest humanitarian project ever. No humanitarian of, you know, the year 1700, uh, outside of maybe an extremely select circle of, of kind of enlightenment thinkers, could ever have conceived of a project uh, of this magnitude to bring benefits and value to the human race. And so when you look back at history and you realize that for thousands, tens of thousands of years, people suffered and died in what we would now consider crushing extreme poverty. And only in the last couple hundred years, we've really been making significant progress and lifting ourselves out of that. Then if you, if you care at all about human life, you just have to ask, how did that happen? Why did it take so long? And how do we keep it going? Right. So is that why it took so long for people to realize that this is a special subject that deserves its own study just until uh, until the modern day we, we didn't have 
such a remarkable contrast to the way life was before. Yeah, well, I think it took a while for people to even believe that progress of this type was possible and desirable. Um, Joel McKeer uh, covers this well, I think, in his book, A Culture of Growth, which is one of the books that really started me off on this whole project. Um, he wrote a good article in The Atlantic uh, titled something like Progress Isn't Natural. And he explains that the very idea of progress is not is a relatively new one in human history, really didn't have it until um, around kind of the era of Francis Bacon and sort of scientific revolution, um, 1500s or so. Uh, and he really shows how in, in the 15 and 1600s, this concept evolved uh, in the West and uh, laid the intellectual foundation for the Industrial Revolution. Um, in contrast, most people in most places and times uh, have sort of the opposite mentality that Mokir calls ancestor worship, where you essentially believe, and many people in Europe believed, that uh, our ancient ancestors were the greatest people who ever lived. They know everything that uh, anybody could ever learn. In fact, everything was revealed to them in ancient times. We can never surpass their achievements. All we can really do, or their knowledge, all we can really do is read the ancient texts and um, you know, try to, to glean what knowledge we can from them. I think this was reinforced in Europe because of the, the peculiar history of kind of the Roman Empire and then the fall into the Dark Ages. Uh, there, I mean, a lot of knowledge and technology was lost. Um, right. And so by the, you know, uh, by the 12, 13, 1400 or so, you have people looking around uh, and they're looking around at some of these ruins that were left. I mean, the Colosseum and the aqueducts and even the pyramids in Egypt and saying to themselves, wow, we don't build stuff like that anymore, except for some cathedrals here and there, you know, but um, it really seemed like there was this race of amazing people who lived thousands of years ago. Um, and then they started rediscovering knowledge, right? They started rediscovering ancient texts. And you had the Roman guy who did all the um, Vitruvius, sorry, I think it is, um, who, uh, you know, wrote about uh, the ancient uh, Roman methods of building and architecture. And uh, you, you see this knowledge and it's like, wow, there's all this ancient knowledge that was lost. And you can fairly, very easily think, that these were a bunch of people thousands of years ago who were far superior to us. That doesn't seem like a progress story. It seems like right. the opposite, right? right. Um, and so the idea that, hey, we can actually surpass the ancients. We can learn more than they knew. We can achieve things that they could never do. We can have capabilities they never had. Like that was a deep philosophical idea that needed to explicitly be conceived and championed. And for hundreds of years, there was a debate about this in the Western world uh, of, of who was greater and who could be greater. Um, and, and it was really by uh, late 1600s, around 1700 or so, especially with the achievements of Newton, that that debate was finally put to rest. And people saw, yes, we can make progress. Uh, we can we can do better and and started to think that maybe history could be not cyclic or stagnant, but an upward trajectory into the future. So I, I make a hobby out of intellectual history. And I just find the evolution of concepts really fascinating. And, and a recent guest we had was uh, Dr. Thomas Moynihan, who focuses on the discovery of the concept of existential risk. And so I know this isn't really your focus, but do you have any thoughts about how that developed over time, like how we discovered the notion of progress. Because as you just said, in, in 1310, somebody living in Western Europe, looking around at the Colosseums, imagining that progress isn't really achievable, would have been somewhat justified in that, right? I mean, they, they see that there's all this architecture around that they can't replicate, that nobody can replicate, nobody has any idea how this stuff was built. Uh, and, and that with Isaac Newton and his discovery of the laws of motion and, and, and the way he advanced science, once and for all, that was kind of put to rest. So have you spent any time just thinking about how this has developed? Well, going back to Mokir, he says that one of the uh, early cracks in the foundation, so to speak, was the uh, sort of the age of discovery and in particular the discovery of new continents. So when, you know, Columbus ran smack into the Americas, wow, well, here's an entire continent or two that the ancients didn't know about. This right. isn't in any of their books. This isn't on any of their maps. I guess they didn't know everything. I guess not all knowledge was revealed to them in ancient times, right? Okay. And so, you know, things like that start to give people the idea that, ah, maybe there is new knowledge to be found. Um, and then, you know, figures like Bacon were very influential. Um, you know, Bacon sort of showed the way in terms of how to 
be much more experimental in knowledge, which was a key epistemological piece that was missing. If you look back at um, the ancient Greeks, for instance, and the science such as it was that they had, uh, they, you know, they like to jump to conclusions. They would make a few observations, perhaps, of a pretty rudimentary nature. And uh, very quickly, they would start theorizing, a, you know, they would start spinning theories of everything. And this is where you get the four elements or the, you know, everything is water and, and right. so forth. And, um, you know, we can cut them a little slack. They were very early. They were ahead of their time. Uh, they, it was, a, you know, their science was a huge advance over the complete lack of science, the non-science that had come before. Uh, but they were obviously missing something key about the scientific method, right? They were missing the very rigorous uh, bottom-up experimental uh, method that makes very detailed, careful observations and doesn't try to jump to abstract conclusions in one enormous leap. Um, and so, you know, their theories couldn't really guide them. And in fact, they didn't see, I mean, the ancient Greeks did not see a significant link between abstract theory and practical implementation. They did not have Bacon's knowledge is power uh, type of outlook. Right. They didn't have our modern outlook where we see science all around us in the technology that, for instance, you and I are using to record this conversation right now. It's obvious to us today, if you if, uh, glance around, that our world is based on, is built on science. Um, but that was not true in the ancient Greek world, nor did they see how it how it could or would be true. Um, so that itself was a huge advance. Um, and, and that notion did exist by the time of Bacon, but it was very new. Right. Well, um, so that of, notion had to get defined and championed and then uh, sort of built out over the coming centuries as science advanced. Yeah, one of the, um, the things I talk about when when I uh, do talks on the future of education is that the the human race has an unwritten mandate to pass information on from one generation to the next. Now that was not always true, though. Um, that that started to come about maybe in the I don't know 1500s. I mean, with the Gutenberg press and and um, kind of the as we were able to speed up communications inch by inch along the way and uh, kind of get information around the world. But, um, but that's, that's really more so today in our education systems have been working in concert to try to make that happen. But um, uh, I, I, I think that we're still a long ways from reaching an optimal state of passing information on from one place to the next. I'm sure we could get a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I also find, uh, efforts to define the knowledge that would be needed to reboot civilization were another collapse to happen to be really interesting. So I'm sure you've heard of the knowledge. Uh, I, I don't remember the, the author's name, but it, he, he wrote Lewis Dartnell. What's that? Yes. Lewis Dartnell. Yes. yes. Lewis Dartnell. So uh, have you read the book? I have. So maybe, maybe you could walk us through it because I, I was just going to make some general comments about it. But my understanding is that it's basically this is what you'd need to bootstrap civilization again if there's a nuclear holocaust and a bunch of people die and you're just sort of lost in the ruins. Yes, um, it was uh, w what it really is, is it is a kind of a tour of the essentials of industrial civilization um, with a, uh, a, a gimmick. There's a there's a conceit to the book, which is this notion of what if we were trying to restart civilization in the aftermath of an apocalypse or okay. something. It's not a serious guide to that. If you're a true prepper, you'll be a little disappointed by the book. <laughs> but if you're just like me, interested in an overview of some of the key technologies supporting modern, you know, our modern standard of living, then it is a very nice um, overview. He covers, you know, some of the basics of agriculture, um, key chemicals that are made uh, and that, you know, that you would need. Um, key uh, applications of the germ theory that you can use to avoid disease, um, even how you would begin to restart science and, you know, how you can make glass and lenses and, you know, grind lenses and, you know, all sorts of things like that. So it's a, it's a really nice survey of some of those key technologies. Oh, fantastic. So I want to spend some time on your view of progress and the different facets of it, the, the, the axes along which a civilization can progress. And you, you noted in the, uh, at the top of the episode that, 
the advances in science are relatively unambiguous, but when it comes to governance or politics or a culture's view of art or something like that, it's, it's a little bit harder to nail down what progress has been made, if any. And I, I would stipulate that it's pretty difficult to look at the numbers on child mortality or life expectancy or access to clean water and not believe that the world has gotten almost inconceivably better. But it would also be easy to let that slip into what's often called Whig history. Um, and if you know, for podcast listeners, that's W-H-I-G if you want to Google that. But it's the view that we are inexorably marching towards a better future. And almost by definition, whatever comes next is an improvement over what was uh, what, what came prior to it. And a number of dissident intellectuals have, have kind of pushed back on this, claiming that you know, most of the progress that we see is, is due to technological advancements. And while these are obviously incredible, uh, that's not all there is to a culture and along other axes like how we view art or how we handle philosophy or the state of our poetry, you'd be better off in Vienna in the 1890s. Yeah, and number two, a lot of this is a lot of the progress that we see today is because we're spending down thousands of years of cultural capital that's been accumulated in the West and that eventually it will be much harder to carry the torch forward. So how would you respond to a sophisticated critic of progress like that? Well, on the uh, social political angle, I do think that progress there is more mixed. And um, I certainly wouldn't say that we've seen orders of magnitude progress along virtually every axis the way I think you know, we have seen in material uh, progress. Right. However, I uh, you know I would just I would ask people to just contemplate a few facts. So first, uh, in you know 300 years ago or less, uh, virtually the entire world lived under monarchy. That is no longer the case. Uh, uh, most of the, you know, uh, a lot of the world, I don't know if I'm, a, I can't remember if it's a majority, but a lot of the world now lives under essentially, uh, you know, Republican forms of government with democratically elected representatives, um, what we loosely call democracy. And, uh, or, you know, I mean, even in uh, a place like Britain, where there's technically, a, you know, a, a monarch, there's a, they're basically right. a figurehead and, you know, it's really a constitutional. Nominal, right? yeah, um, there are, there are few monarchies left in the world and um, they are, you know, certainly not the most influential countries. So that's a big deal. And after thousands of years where virtually nobody tried anything, I mean, even considered or thought about anything other than monarchy, uh, that's a really big deal. Um, you know, what are some other things like we actually have, uh, you know, no matter how well or poorly you think it's functioning or how corrupt it might be, uh, we have a justice system that is explicitly based on certain standards of procedure and evidence. That is a really big deal. We don't, uh, you know, we, we don't burn witches at the stake anymore. We don't <laughs> um, we don't have trial by ordeal. Right. We have, um, uh, you know, we I mean, we have jury trials, we have standards for evidence and, and so forth. So, you know, that is a big deal. Um, taxes. Taxes used to be, you know, at, at one time, at least in feudal Europe, were uh, a fairly arbitrary power when the king or the lord needed money in some at least in some times and places, they could basically just ask for it. I need some more money, time to pay up everybody, right? Um, and they could ask for it in, in all sorts of forms, right? So taxes weren't always just in money. They could ask for it in grain, in labor, right? A labor tax sounds a lot like slavery, doesn't yep, it? Yep. It's basically part-time slavery. And this existed well into, I mean, uh, this labor tax, by the way, uh, I believe existed in some place forms, even in the United States, into the 1700s um, in, in, in some places and times. You know, we don't do this anymore. We don't require labor from people anymore. Um, we don't, you know, taxes are well-defined. They are written down. They can only be changed by law. They, can, they are payable in money and only in money. Like those things that we completely take for granted were not always the case. We're not the case until relatively recently um, in history. Those are just a couple of examples, but uh, you know, I think there are actually many, many ways. Oh, and of course, Steven Pinker has a whole book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Um, how violence has declined that covers, you know, many other related aspects of this. Um, yeah. He talks I, about the decline of torture. We don't allow torture anymore. Um, or even the, the, I mean, the, the torture that is allowed is absolutely nothing like, you know, what they did in the middle ages. Right. Um, we don't, uh, you know, animal cruelty has 
you know, been reduced. We don't let kids just, uh, you know, torture cats in the street for fun anymore. We don't have public hangings anymore or people in the stocks. Uh, you know, so there's an enormous amount of kind of, there's just, there's just many, many ways in which um, I think moral and social conditions have improved. Yeah. Are, are you aware of um, uh, the Alvin Toffler's last book? He, he used this example of holding this imaginary radar gun to society and then gauging the speed with which certain aspects of society were moving into the future. And he said that business and industry was moving very quickly. And so he'd rate that at a, like a hundred miles an hour. And then, uh, then he would take it back to family life is moving slower. So maybe that's moving 60 miles an hour. And then all the way down to different aspects of government that move much slower than that. And then, then at the bottom, he says, so it's the law and the law, changed very very slowly so like four or five miles an yeah. hour and so as I, it should as um i always thought that that was such an interesting way of of thinking about uh kind of the the rate of progress and in that we have to kind of pick apart the different uh layers of society and and see what's moving and what isn't and and what what kind of friction that creates in between these different layers um have you have you uh, done anything around uh, uh, using examples like that, models like that? That's interesting. I haven't thought about that much, although what it does remind me of is uh, something called the Pace Layers uh, model, which I learned about through the Long Now Foundation. So you can look that up. Um, it's there. That's something a little bit different, but they talk about um, different layers of the world, I suppose. Uh, and as I recall, the bottom most layer is sort of nature or like almost physics, laws of nature. And then it progresses through, I don't remember all the levels, I think culture, government, infrastructure, uh, commerce, uh, and then the, the most ephemeral and fastest moving layer is fashion. And so at the, at, at the outer layers, you have these very fast moving, very ephemeral kind of turbulent things like fashion. And then it goes all the way down through the lit to, you know, nature, which basically doesn't really change. And um, the interesting things happen, they say, at the boundaries of the layers, right, where, where commerce meets infrastructure, right, or where government meets culture or, you know, something like that. Um, and also they, uh, I believe part of the model is that every layer is trying to become the layer below. Right. So fashion is trying to be commercially successful. Uh, businesses are trying to turn into essential infrastructure. Infrastructure is trying to turn into government. I forget exactly how it goes, right. but, you know, something something along those lines. I think the fastest layer has got to be dank memes now. Like, <laughs> fa fa fashion That's, that'd be the outer, the outer layer of fashion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the exosphere of the pace layer model. Um, so when, when Thomas was, was talking about the speed limit, analogy for the different rates of, of progress. You said laws should change slowly. And I wonder if, if you've, again, this isn't what you normally focus on, but social systems, uh, it sounds like you want them to change slowly, but that means you'll get progress much more slowly. So what, what is it about social systems that means you would want very sort of glacial change? And, and do you have any interest in models like charter cities where it would allow a certain amount of uh, experimentation in governance, um, or, or a break with the standard models, but still ensconced within sort of a broader framework, the, the laws of the surrounding country, uh, which would anchor it in some way. Does any of that interest you? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, I, 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 when I, when I interrupted, uh, about, you know, it being good that the law was changing slowly, I didn't necessarily mean for that to apply broadly to social systems as such. Um, but I do think it is a feature, not a bug of, uh, government, certainly in the U.S. today, that um, it was designed for a certain amount of stability, and it was designed uh, to be somewhat difficult to change. Um, and that was an advance over absolute monarchy, where the laws can change at a whim, at the snap of a finger, right? Uh, so yes, I do think that when it comes to Law and regulation that is implemented through the force of government through uh, and is imposed on people, whether they like it or not, then it is good that we have, uh, you know, that that happens sort of slowly and through careful objective processes. Um, now, other things in society, you know, so if you if you zoom out to social systems, which is a broader term, um, I think it could be, you know, it can certainly be good for lots more experiments to happen 
in social systems as, as long as they're outside of sort of the coercive core uh, of government. Um, and I'm all for experimentation in, you know, in, in whatever, in uh, ways that people communicate in forms of art and, you know, or, or you know, all sorts of other things at the layer of, of society. Um, you mentioned charter cities. I, I am interested in charter cities in general. I think they're a great experiment. Um, you know, I see them as uh, I see them as an end run around bureaucracy. That's really yeah. kind of what I see. Yeah. I think a lot of the world is mired in, especially you know, outside of developed countries. You ask, well, why are the why are the undeveloped countries not, you know, not at the level of the rest of the world? Well, a lot of it is bad social systems, right? A lot of it is dysfunctional governments, um, corruption. Low They're mired societies. in. Yeah, uh, you know, and they're they're mired in um, regulation. You know, in India, they used to talk about the license raj that you had to. You know, there's just an enormous amount of bureaucracy to do anything, like even open a business, and mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you had to resort to bribery and and all kinds of things because you couldn't get anything done otherwise. And uh, you know, so I think I mean they're not like that um, anymore. Uh, fortunately, I mean they're not not like they were in the 70s or something. But uh, so I think in. It, you know, something like Charter City is kind of a an excuse to uh, make an end run around all that. And rather than having to fix that through slow incremental reform, carve out a small area and say, hey, let's just start with the clean slate here. Can we just copy the best practices from elsewhere in the world? Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, if you wouldn't adopt these wholesale at the level of your country, maybe you were willing to adopt them in a special economic zone or the equivalent. Right. Right. Um, and so I think that's a great way to get better governments, uh, better governance and more economic, economic freedom in, uh, you know, areas that otherwise don't have a lot of it. So as, as you've been looking at progress around the globe, um, obviously you've had to focus a lot on what the, being done in China and things are happening very, very fast, very quickly there. Um, and you know, some things are good and some things are bad. So, uh, do you, you have some thoughts on, um, their ability to make a decision at the snap of a finger and, um, and make things happen quickly as versus what, uh, in the U S we, we spend, uh, countless hours on having meetings and hearings and sessions and doing environmental impact statements and uh, dragging things on and on and on. And um, in, in China, they can get uh, a thousand things done in the time that it takes us to study one thing. Well, I would also add uh, another good historical vignette of that process is the Meiji Restoration in Japan in the latter part of the 19th century, where they basically industrialized over like I don't, 20 or 30 years. They're just like, we're doing all this stuff now this way, and this is how it's going to be. And it, it was relatively successful. I mean, as, as top-down yeah. experiments like this go. Um, I, I tend to think those are unusual cases, but one could argue that having a state that's very responsive and can kind of do whatever it wants to has its advantages, depending yeah. on the problems you're facing. Yeah, so there's, there's pluses and minuses to each one. Um, I mean, one of the uh, problems in China has been that they built all these uh, ghost cities, right. all these houses that nobody lives in, um, and uh, that would seem to be a problem. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think that uh, you know, America used to be able to get things done also. Um, we used to be able to get a lot of things done very quickly. Uh, if you just, I mean, if you want sort of the classic quintessential case study on this, just look at America's response to World War II. The speed with which we ramped up uh, research. I mean, how fast we did, if you, if you look at the history of the, um, the uh, OSRD, Office of Scientific Research and Development, which was headed by Vannevar Bush, and the things that they did in a very short period of time, helping with the development of penicillin, uh, helping with the invention of radar, um, uh, even, uh, you know, of course, uh, inventing and building the atomic bomb. There was, uh, you know, there was an enormous amount of research that got done very quickly and got put into practice very quickly. Um, you can also look at the industrial ramp up uh, and the factories that were retooled and the, you know, the just the number of jeeps and tanks and ships and everything that we were turning out. It was amazing. Um, uh, America was a can-do country back then. And something happened in the, what's it been, 75 years uh, since, in the two or three generations. Um, we're, we're not the same anymore. And I don't 100% know why. 
Um, but there is something has changed, I think, in our rules and our bureaucracy, and something has also changed in our spirit. And um, I think it's very significant. I don't have all the, the reasons for it. Um, but I, I think it would be a deep mistake to chalk up uh, ability to get things done to an authoritarian state right, um, right. for many, many reasons, both practical and moral. Um, uh, and, I, and I simply don't think it's true. Uh, I mean, China was way more authoritarian until Mao died. Right. They just they they their economic growth came in large part from from opening up, you know, economically and making it possible, uh, for, you know, making making it possible for people to do things. In fact, I think on some axes, it's probably easier to do things in China than it is in America today. Right. Um, and I and, and America's, uh, you know, lack of ability to get things done, I, you know, I think is not. I disagree with the uh, people who attribute this to individualism or to, um, you know, any anything that is kind of has historically been seen as quintessentially American. I think it's quite the opposite. I think China is, has made the progress in the last, what, 40 years or so, 40, 45, because they adopted some small elements of the American system. And America has become less it can do because we lost some elements of the American system. Well, so let, let's so. stick with that because my next question is actually about the stagnation hypothesis. So a good deal of your recent writing has focused on this issue, the notion that progress has been winding down for a few decades uh, or a couple of generations maybe. And, and Peter Thiel captured this sentiment in his famous aphorism that we wanted flying cars and what we got was 140 characters. And when Eric Weinstein interviewed uh, Peter on his, on his uh, podcast, The Portal, he asked, if you walked into a room and you subtracted all the screens, how would you know it's not 1970? Something like that. Uh, so if, if I recall correctly, you were initially pretty skeptical of the hypothesis that stagnation is sort of the state of affairs today. And I still haven't decided how I feel about it. So could you just sort of adumbrate the case for it? Like, like what brought you around? Yeah, sure. So my reaction to that, you know, we wanted flying cars, we got 140 characters was like, what the heck is the matter with the 140 characters? Sure. You know, that is a that is a snarky stand in for the Internet. You know, if you if you rephrase that as we wanted flying cars, but what we got was a supercomputer in everybody's pocket that is connected to all of the knowledge, culture, art, and philosophy of the entire world. That, that does doesn't sound, sound so bad. Grand. That does sound right. That's a little bit okay. So at first, so for that reason, I was I was initially uh, skeptical. Right. Similar thing with the walk into a room and, and subtract off all the screens. Well, that sounds like a little sleight of hand. Why, why do you get to subtract off all the screens? It sounds like saying, well, if you carve out all the progress, there hasn't been much progress, which sounds like a sort of a not, a not very helpful tautology, right? So, so that's why, well, no, because I did come around. So that was why I was initially skeptical. What convinced me was just studying broadly the history of progress and looking at what were the major breakthroughs, what areas were they made in, and when were they made, and starting to line things up kind of... Um, I actually started making a little diagram or chart for myself, uh, a, a timeline with time along the, you know, the x-axis and then the, along the y-axis, it was sort of sp split out into various major areas of uh, economy and industry, um, manufacturing, agriculture, energy, transportation, information, so forth, right? And, uh, and I realized that a lot of things were clustering in this period around, especially around the late 19th and early 20th century. And there were some gaps in the last 50 to you know 70 or so years, um, especially the last 50 years or so since about 1970, um, which, is a, which is kind of a roughly a turning point um, that you know, a lot of people talk about. Um, so if you, if you just look broadly, kind of like what were the really major breakthroughs, especially these kind of fundamental enabling um, technologies or these whole areas that were getting revolutionized. Well, if you look back to, uh, you know, what they call the second industrial revolution from the late 19th century to the, you know, through the early to mid 20th century, what did you get? Well, uh, in manufacturing, you had, uh, you know, the whole uh, really, I mean, not the entire factory revolution, because some of that happened before, but you had like the assembly line and an enormous amount, you know, you had basically the advent of mass manufacturing. Um, you In materials, you had an entirely new class of materials invented, which was plastic. Um, in agriculture, you had the first synthetic uh, fertilizers through the Haber-Bosch process, and you also had uh, the application of uh, uh, gas power, so to, to gas tractors. 
um, which enabled things like the combine harvester. In energy, you had, well, the gas engine, right? The internal combustion engine, the entire oil revolution, and the electricity revolution, including the light bulb, the electric motor, the electric generator, um, you know, which eventually led to things like air conditioning and so forth. Okay, I guess air conditioning is a little later. You can, cut, you can carve that one out. Right. Um, in, uh, uh, in transportation, you had the invention of the automobile and the airplane. In uh, uh, information, you had the uh, the telegraph came a little bit earlier, but you had the telephone, uh, radio, and television. In uh, uh, in medicine, you had basically the the germ theory and its applications in public health. So you had things like water sanitation, uh, the beginnings of antibiotics, uh, the first vaccines since, uh, you know, Edward Jenner's vaccine for smallpox almost 100 years prior and so forth. So this is just an enormous amount of stuff. Um, you know, you can boil that down to like four or five major revolutions, oil, gas, uh, sorry, you know, um, oil, electricity, um, you know, powered transportation, uh, applied chemistry in a number of different domains and the germ theory. And then when you come to what they call the third industrial revolution, right, from sort of mid to late 20th century to today, what have you got? You have an enormous amount of progress in computing and communications, right? Computers and the internet. And you have, I would say about, you know, half of a revolution in genetic engineering, which has given us some really amazing things, but it just feels like we barely scratched the surface, right? It feels like it hasn't fully arrived yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And not a lot in other places, right? Transportation, how are we moving around? Well, we're still driving cars and flying airplanes that are a lot like they looked in 1970. The airplanes actually fly a little bit slower these days. Um, You know, what about manufacturing? Well, we still have factories making stuff out of steel and plastic and, you know, uh, uh, and certainly there've been improvements in all these areas, not as if there's been zero progress in these other areas. There's certainly been some improvements, but it just hasn't been revolutionary the way that it's been in other areas. We have not done for cancer and heart disease what we did for infectious disease, right? Dropping mortality rates by like orders of magnitude by fundamentally figuring out the science and then applying some very basic remedies. Um, So you just look across the board and, you know, progress is still faster now than it has been, than it was at any time in the pre-industrial era, right? Uh, we are stagnation, you know, the term stagnation throws people off because it sounds like zero progress or it sounds very negative, like, you know, we're um, so unimpressed by this progress. It's like the derivative um, of the rate of progress is is sloping it, downwards. It, yeah, it, it, it's, it's really just saying that we are slower now than compared to the super impressive, historically completely unprecedented peak of the late 19th and early 20th century. And I think when you survey those things across the board, it, it's just it's just true. I mean, to to argue otherwise, you'd essentially have to say that the computer revolution, and this is the you get, you get a lot of pushback on this because people want to say, but look, the computer revolution, it was really amazing. Think of all these things. And I, yeah, I know. I'm a, I love the computer revolution. My whole, by the way, my training was in computer science, and my previous career was all in the tech industry. I love computers as much as anybody, but it's hard to argue that computers and the internet and, you know, recombinant DNA together are equal to, let alone greater than, the sum total of oil, electricity, cars, airplanes, the telephone, radio, television, plastics, and the germ theory, right? It just, yeah. it just, it just doesn't stack up. Yeah, some of what's happening, though, is we're seeing second waves um, in these different industries, like the power industry right now. Uh, going through some major transitions and uh, some of the stuff that Elon Musk is trying to do with um, uh, 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 with the solar shingles and then actually creating microgrids in cities, um, creating uh, blockchain systems for selling electricity from one one person to the next. Um, that type of thing, we're, we're kind of setting some of the, the groundwork for that. Um, as as Musk is trying to, I, I think he, the prediction is that he'll have over a thousand microgrids before the end of the year, um, which is, which is pretty staggering because a lot of this stuff is happening in the background. If he doesn't tweet about it, you don't know what's happening. Uh, and uh, so, yeah. so and I want to yeah. I want to clarify that uh, this everything I'm talking about is a 
backwards looking, uh, you know, it is a summary of history. It is not a prediction for the future. And the folks who have advanced the stagnation hypothesis actually, I think, have very different views of the future, ranging from Tyler Cowen, who wrote The Great Stagnation in 2011, I think it was, uh, who predicted that it would end within 20 years or so of the book. Uh, he sort of saw it as kind of a temporary malaise that we were going through and that we would pull ourselves out of. Contrast that with Robert Gordon, who wrote The Rise and Fall of American Growth and basically is saying innovation is dead and there's no more growth ever. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, no more high growth. The Gee, era God. of high growth is over. It was a temporary phenomenon. And uh, sorry, all the big things have been invented and that's all there is to it, which is a little, I, I don't understand how we can have that view, but that seems to be his view. And then if you go to Peter Thiel, Thiel, you know, from what I've read, seems to talk about it almost, you know, as a moral failing. We drop the ball. We let progress go. Uh, we don't do big things anymore. We lost our optimism and our confidence and our and our courage for the future. And we need to pick it up and get our butts in gear, you know, basically. I don't know if he would exactly agree with that, but that's that's the certainly the impression I get from his, you know, from his writing. So those are three very different views of the future of progress, but from three people who all sort of agree on the past. Um, so I agree with you that there are certainly some very interesting things on the horizon across a number of fields. Um, and if they all came through, uh, you can certainly see progress, the rate of the overall rate of progress really picking up. That yeah. said, I think if you start to look at some of the things that people have hypothesized about what are the causes of this stagnation, none of them are going away. And so, uh, any optimism I have for the future has to be a little tempered by that. You know, I don't see some of the core problems having been solved yet. Yeah. I, well, I would agree with you there, but um, uh, I spent a lot of time looking at the post COVID world uh, and, and where we're, what we're moving into. And it looks to me like a lot of countries are going to be spending major amounts of money on what I refer to as mega projects. Um, and these are can be infrastructure projects, that, but they can range across the board to include a lot of other things. And it's it's intended to keep people employed or re-employ re a lot of people. Uh, and so tackling things like, um, you know, creating a colony on the moon or on Mars, uh, all that money gets spent on Earth to prepare for doing something in space. Um, and um, look, looking at uh, the idea of building a bridge across the Bering Strait or across the Darien Gap that would connect North and South America, um, these are all doable projects if we have the political will to do them. And I don't know if COVID changed that uh, just as a way of trying to uh, spark our imagination again. Uh, we need to do something. We need to invest big dollars, but, but maybe. And so I'm, I'm curious as to what your thinking is on uh, moving forward into an era of mega projects. Well, I like the spirit behind mega projects in let's be ambitious and do something big. Uh, the risk of mega projects, you know, so, some of them I think have not turned out so well in the, the long view, you know, looking back on them. So, you know, the last space mega project we did was Apollo. Yeah. Apollo was great until it ended. And, uh, you know, when it, 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 it kind of put, it pushed us forward in a number of ways, but it was kind of this big showpiece. And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe it even had some sort of political geopolitical justification, but, um, in terms of advancing technology, it's not really clear that it did, or at least not for the long term. Right. Yeah. I was just going to say, could, could you expand on that a little bit? Because I, I mean, I, I would have said it's, it's obviously true that it advanced technology. So I, that's really fascinating that, that you're saying that. It yeah. Didn't. Except three years after we went to the moon, we stopped going. And eventually we didn't even have the capability to, to get to the moon anymore. Uh, and then eventually we didn't even have the capability to lift. I mean, NASA doesn't have the capability to, to lift off rockets anymore. Right. I mean, they have to, they have to contract to, to SpaceX now, and for a while it was the Russians, wasn't it? Um, to ha you didn't have launch capability. So, you know, when you look at um, like real progress is sustained progress over the long term that leads to economic outcomes for a broad set of people, right? That actually makes people's lives better. And uh, 
you know, the Apollo project, as much as I love the spirit behind it, and it's a really inspiring, just historical thing. Um, it just didn't, you know, it, it didn't go anywhere after that. And it sort of left a, a, a gaping hole. And so I think when these things are driven and, you know, um, supersonic transport is a little bit similar in that it was kind of, you know, the Concorde was done by the British and French governments and, uh, you know, it was kind of pushed forward a little bit on the basis of national pride. And because of that, and because it wasn't driven by the good old fashioned profit motive, they never really made it economical. Um, it was always extremely expensive to operate. And because of that, it was never affordable to the broad, you know, to, 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 a, to any broad segment of people. It was always kind of a luxury for the rich. Um, and uh, it wasn't super profitable. And then when they had an excuse, they shut it down after, you know, 30, uh, 40 some years. It was less than 30 years, I think, in operation, 76 to 2003, as I recall. So, uh, you know, these things that aren't driven forward on a basis of sound kind of, you know, an economic uh, basis, right? Where you're finding a real way that this makes a lot of people's lives better and creating a sustainable for-profit business model for it. Um, they just often don't actually, you know, they, they're a bit of a stimulant. They look, they give you a high for a decade or two, right? Maybe even three, but they, but they're not a kind of healthy, sustainable, long-term approach to progress in my opinion. So how is how is that different from building the railroads in the 1800s, and um, um, because that ended up being a sustainable business model, and then uh, yeah. going into well, you, space. You, that's the answer. It was a, it it was a, it was a business. They charged people wanted to go from one point of the end of the railroad to the other, and they charged money for it. So that was you know that was self sustaining. Okay. If people wanted to get to the moon then maybe Apollo could have been the beginning of a business, right? But but nobody was going to pay to go there, so. Uh, well, as I recall, nobody... That's why I'm optimistic, by the way, that, that we can actually get... Uh, so I'm optimistic about both space and supersonic because today we are starting to see, um, in, in both of those areas, the beginnings of a private renaissance. Um, and these companies have sustainable business models. If you look at Boom Supersonic, for instance, you know they were built from the very beginning on how can we make this economical and affordable, um, and 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 make the the business model work. Um, space, I'm a little less clear on, but uh, you know I think uh, I'm optimistic that it could even begin with tourism, um, and if you could bring the costs down for uh, you know for for even for space tourism, I think that would be a way to just get some money into the system and, and, and kickstart it. Uh, and then you can bring the cost down even more, bring the reliability up. Um, maybe you can start using it for other things. We're already starting to see companies that are looking for a practical applications of manufacturing in space. And there might be some, some interesting, you know, things that you can do in the microgravity environment. So, you know, I'm hopeful for, uh, to, that we'll get back on a sustainable path, but I think we'll do it more through economic, you know, mechanisms rather than through, um, uh, you know, politically motivated mega projects. One, one of my ways uh, of speculating on commercializing Mars uh, was once we actually have a, a team up there that forms the first Mars colony, that the first thing to commercialize up there is the selling of land on Mars because you don't, you don't have to do much to sell the land. You just plot it out and, <laughs> and offer it for sale. And, and once they prove that they can get there, then people are going to be interested in buying it. And there's, there's actually more land on Mars than there is on Earth because there's no oceans. Uh, so they've yeah. got a lot of resources. What would they do with the land? Um, well, it's kind of like buying Bitcoin right now, but uh, <laughs> you, can, you can sell it to other people. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, so just... I think there needs to be, there need to be fundamentals. Right, right, right. I think, yeah, but uh, that that was just uh, a bit of a lark. That the, the idea that there are things that can be commercialized, but it's going to be really slow moving on Mars because there's so many things that can go wrong. Yeah, it takes a long time to get there. It's a little bit like ocean travel was, you know, in uh, in in the age of discovery, right? Like, takes months to get anywhere. Super dangerous. You might not come back. Right. You're not, to, you know, we, we're maybe even in a slightly better position because we actually know exactly where everything is and we can map, you know, we have the navigation down, right? right. <laughs> Which they didn't in the uh, 1400s. 
but yeah. yeah. So you've written a lot about the history of different kinds of technologies. Is there one that you especially love learning about and, and that you think has insights, which everyone should be made aware of? Oh, wow. Um, you know, they're all really great. Uh, there are certainly, I think, neglected technologies. Um, one that I still have a lot to learn about, but is, I think, clearly underrated is the chemical industry. Um, you know, it's a, it's not a consumer product, so it's not a thing that fills the shelves. Well, it is, but people don't recognize it as such. You know, there's detergents and, um, you know, uh, household cleaning supplies and, you know, all kinds of things like that are all products of the chemical industry. Uh, but a lot of it is goes into industrial processes, um, things like synthetic fertilizer or, you know, things for manufacturing and construction, uh, you know, et cetera, plastics and so forth. Um, and all these came out of really applied chemistry. So I think that is a, a big untold story. Um, I am fond of telling the story of cement. Uh, right. Cement is a, you know, is a, is a technology which if it, if I just described it to you, it would sound absolutely futuristic. You know, it's liquid rock. Right. It's rock. It's, it's like instant stone, like, you know, like, uh, like a pancake mix or instant coffee or something. It's like, you know, just add water. Right. pour into a mold and you get instant stone, you know, and it forms in any shape you want. Right. And we can keep it around in bags and then, and it's super cheap. And we just, you know, pour liquid rock into a mold. Like if I, I could probably get you going for about 30 seconds, tell, making you think I was describing a, a brand new cutting edge technology and it's actually 10,000 years old. So I think, you know, cement is underrated. Um, so there's definitely a, a, you know, a bunch of things like that, that I think people should, you know, this is, a, I, I talk about the concept of uh, industrial literacy. I think that people who live in industrial civilization today, which is pretty much all of us, and who enjoy the standard of living that it creates, really owe it to themselves and to the society that they participate in to learn a little something about what are the underpinnings of that civilization, right? What are the underpinnings of the system that delivers you air conditioning and fresh milk and orange juice in your refrigerator and an inner spring mattress and a hot shower and an elevator to take you up to the 30th floor and a train, you know, to get you to and from work. Um, and, uh, you know, movies and television streaming on demand, like all of these things that we all, you know, that we enjoy on a daily basis. What does it take to deliver that to you? I mean, that is a gift. That is a, a bequeathment from our ancestors that that they did not enjoy, and that we only get because of, you know, the the, the toil and struggle of previous generations. And so I think you know, people should just have a little gratitude and like learn a little something about it, right? What does it take to keep this system going? Especially by the way, when we are asked to vote for politicians who are going to then regulate all of these industries and make. Uh, you know, decisions that are going to affect all of us. Uh, and so I think not enough people know enough about just kind of the basics of what it takes to keep the world running. So we're, we're in a, a unique era where we have lots of people that are uh, health conscious and we, we, we're much more aware of things happening around the world. So if somebody releases a new report in Russia or in, in South America or in Australia, we know about it 10 minutes later. And, and so we're very health conscious about uh, everything that we consume and everything that we eat. And um, I'd like to get some of your insights as the progress in the agriculture world and how it's meeting the demand for um, the, the new consumer that's uh, evolving here. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm just beginning to research agriculture for myself. So um, I've been uh, I've been looking into a lot of things that happened in the 19th and early 20th century, a little less up on the latest developments. I mean, I think, you know, this, the basic story of agriculture is that um, I can I can explain it in two words. Our problem in agriculture used to be famine. Today, it's obesity. Yeah, <laughs> that is that is the basic story, right, that we the, the problem for almost all of human history was just producing enough to make sure everybody got fed and having that on a reliable basis. You know, um, power uh, agriculture was just sort of unreliable in a way that I think is difficult for us to appreciate every day when we get fresh deliveries of everything we could possibly want to eat to a supermarket within, you know, five minutes drive of us pretty much wherever you live. Uh, you know, just the idea that the harvest could fail that drought or a plague of insects or uh, a fungus or 
um, you know, just bad temperatures or a volcano that erupted halfway around the world a year before, you know, uh, blotting out the sun, right? I mean, all, all these sorts of things could, could cause famine. And, um, you know, famine has been eliminated from the developed world. It's just not a thing we think about anymore. Hasn't happened in the uh, Americas, I believe, for over a century. So uh, that's really the big story. Now, it's still the case that not everybody in the world gets enough to eat. That's not because we're not making enough calories, right? Again, it comes back to sort of more um, dysfunctional governments and, um, uh, and corruption and so forth. So uh, that's kind of the big story. You know, um, how we did that was through innovations in a number of areas. Uh, f f fertilizer and soil fertility, um, most of all, um, agricultural mechanization, which has allowed us to uh, do all of this with just a few percent of the population, you know, working on farms, whereas it used to be literally more than half the workforce essentially had to be farmers because with, with older methods and technology, you know, you could, uh, a, a farmer and his family could make enough to feed themselves and one other family just about. So, you know, half the people had to be involved in farming. Um, breeds, uh, breeding to create better varieties, uh, long before, you know, GMOs or any sort of genetic engineering, we had breeding programs. And now of course we can do it with, with technology. Um, you know, these are some of the big things plus along, of course, with the, uh, the refrigerated supply chain, refrigeration and freezing, which can actually preserve all of this. And of course the transportation supply chain that gets it all the way around the world so that you can have, you know, durian or dragon fruit or whatever in your local market. Uh, virtually, you know, anytime you want it. So that's sort of the big story of agriculture, I would say. So in an essay you wrote, uh, almost all our progress has been made in the last 500 years, even though we've had writing for 5,000 years and language for 50,000. Seen this way, we are fantastically wealthy relative to where we were even 100 years ago. And by implication, we are desperately poor compared to where we can be 100 years from now if we keep this going. I, I found that just such a beautiful and compelling message. And I wanted to close by asking what gives you hope? A number of things. On the, uh, just on the at the object level on the technological frontier, there's a number of things um, coming along. We have, we've had some big breakthroughs recently. The first ever approved mRNA vaccines. Um, the, the, the first ever, as far as I know, vaccine that was developed uh, within less than one year, uh, you know, developed and delivered to the market in, in less than a year from the time that the germ itself was identified. Um, that I believe has never been done. It usually takes years or decades. Um, the this I think could be an early indication of a, a real revolution in biotech and genetics in particular to come in the coming decades. Um, CRISPR I think will be a key a part of that. That's a tool that just accelerates the research and the engineering here. Um, we've seen some really impressive achievements in artificial intelligence. Um, most recently, I would say AlphaFold, uh, with its application to uh, protein structure determination is uh, it was, was a, a really interesting breakthrough. Um, as I mentioned, the beginnings of a private renaissance in uh, space and supersonic travel. Um, some interesting things happening in energy technology. Um, uh, geothermal is something, uh, if you look up, um, Eli Dorado has been uh, writing a lot about geothermal energy, which is pretty interesting. Um, of course, the costs of solar power have been coming down uh, enormously. There's been a lot of progress there. And there seems to be a renewed interest in nuclear power um, with sort of projects going on to kind of uh, maybe have a revival of fission and also, you know, some really interesting experimentation going on in fusion. So, uh, you know, across the board in, uh, in kind of a lot of areas, there seem to be some hopeful signs. Um, more broadly, I would say just discovering this, uh, that there is a progress community. In, uh, you know, mid-2019, Tyler Cowen and Patrick Collison wrote this article in The Atlantic uh, calling for a new science of progress, and they coined this term, progress studies. And that really galvanized uh, a community around this concept. There were a bunch of people, including me, who had been writing and thinking about this, and we just didn't all know about each other. And uh, that article, and I think especially putting that term out there, uh, really kind of brought a, a community together that's quite enthusiastic about this. And so now there are a lot of people, you know, really uh, focused on this. 
both somewhat alarmed, I would say, at the lower progress of the last 50 years, but also determined and uh, and, and hopeful to, you know, to, to do something for the future and uh, fix whatever it is that we've gotten ourselves mired in and, um, you know, and, and, and really get back to those high progress is, days. Is there, a, is there a term that you use to describe people that study progression? Is it progressionists or uh, is there some some tight job title or i mean i'm a futurist uh that's that's a bit more descriptive of what i'm thinking about but uh people that study pro progression um i think you need i think you're lacking a term uh you're probably right yeah usually it's just referred to as the progress community or sometimes the progress studies okay. community okay. or something like that but maybe there does uh need to be a term Solutionist, perhaps. Uh, yeah. That's one. That's one I would like to reclaim. Okay. Uh, it's been. It's typically been used as kind of a term of derision. Yeah. Um, and I would. I would like to 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 bring it back and sort of pick it up and wear it with pride. Okay. Well, Jason Crawford, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's been a great conversation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.